I'm San Francisco Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and you're listening to Fifth in Mission. I'm talking today to Dr. Jessica Briggs, an infectious disease fellow at UCSF. She's discussing her study of recovered COVID-19 patients, where all the heart attack patients have gone, and what Bay Area life will look like in the coming year. Dr. Jessica Briggs, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I was wondering if you could describe what it's like at UCSF right now. It sounds like there aren't all that many COVID-19 patients coming in. Um, Do you think there's any chance a surge in San Francisco is still coming, or have we kind of come out of the woods? I think that most people would say that we have come out of the woods relatively unscathed. And honestly, it's a really, really amazing. Um, so we do have more cases at San Francisco General than we do at UCSF Parnassus. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really because the people in the city who are being most affected by this epidemic are uh, the poor and the people who are working as essential workers, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, there are many more cases inpatient at SFGH than there are at Parnassus, but we never saw the big wave that we were expecting, a f- you know, to happen a few weeks after shelter in place. Mm-hmm. And we actually haven't seen a big wave of admissions from the outbreak in the homeless shelter either, and in MSC South. Um, and so, again, good news all around. Yeah. And very, I'm very hopeful. Um, that the trends we're seeing are positive right. in every direction. Yeah. Do you think it's because we sheltered in place earlier than elsewhere or does something else um, attribute this good news? Why did we do so much better than, say, New York City or other places around the country and the world? Yeah, I, I really think it has to do with the shelter in place ha- when it occurred. It, it, you know, it happened. It wasn't just the number of days ahead of, of New York City. It's that it ha- we, did, we put in shelter in place when there were far fewer cases. Mm-hmm. And uh, compared to when New York City did. And because this virus, you know, the the growth curve of cases is exponential, right? Um, Every day matters. And I really think that we have a lot to have to give a lot of props to uh, the mayor, to the governor, to everyone who made these really hard calls um, to put these severe restrictions in place early. Mm -hmm. uh, Because it I I think George Rutherford at UCSF has estimated that it probably saved somewhere between 30 and 45,000 lives to have wow. done it. Wow. Oh, my goodness. And I, I'm not sure if you're talking about the state of California. Uh, he might have been talking about the state of California, not the Bay Area. But just it's an enormous amount of, of human life, right? Um, and we were all spared really the, the horrors of what's happening in New York City. And and we have our, 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 government, our local government to thank for that. Right. And what has it been like to treat the relatively few COVID-19 patients? What what is it like for them when they get this disease? I think there's a lot of uh, fear at first, right? Um, Because it's this new virus that everyone's talking about. It's on everyone's minds. Um, And so and and what's really difficult for the patient is the length of time uh, that that the virus can cause illness for. So, you know, at first you have fever and cough and shortness of breath, typically, uh, for a few days, five days. And then some people get much worse around day seven-ish and then really truly go into the part where they have trouble breathing and maybe get admitted to the hospital for oxygen or require intubation. And that progression, um, just the length of time for which you can be ill with this disease is really hard for, for patients, right? We've had patients come in to the emergency room they get told they have they have it, they have COVID, but they have to go home because they're not sick enough. And they come back in five days later and they're still not sick enough to be admitted. They go home and quarantine again. 
And then the third time they come in, their their oxygen level is such that we have to admit them to the hospital. And that's that's really not typical of any respiratory viral illness that, that I can think of off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. You know, typically you just if you 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 become ill and within a few days you're gonna know what if you're getting better or getting worse. And this this really has can have like a relapsing remitting course that's hard on patients. Right. And why do some people have such a harder time with it and, you know, even die and others don't show any symptoms at all? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, obviously, there are certain uh, comorbidities and conditions and and especially age, right, that have to do with having a worse outcome from this disease. But uh, there are still young, some young people, right, without comorbidities that become extremely ill and require uh, using use of a ventilator. And we do not know what is the difference between that person and someone age matched uh, who who is just fine, right? And it probably has to have something to do with their immune system, because there there is a thought that um, this ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome that occurs late in the disease might be due to sort of immune dysregulation, like your body's response to the virus sort of goes out of control and causes uh, a worsening of your respiratory symptoms. But we don't, fully understand right now what those factors are for developing that component of the disease. And that is something that we are going to need to study, or we are we are studying right now uh, to try to understand uh, who is at risk for that, that very severe version of the illness. And I've heard from some staff at UCSF and other hospitals that they're even more quiet than they would be on a normal day, you know, without COVID-19. So the thought is that maybe people with serious health conditions are staying away from ERs because they don't want to risk getting the virus. But then how do you, you know, walk that line? Cause you don't want people who are in danger of some other horrible thing happening to them, not coming in to the ER and just suffering alone at home. It's a really hard line to walk. I think there's a lot of fear again, you know, we're not, we're not actively discouraging people to stay home from the hospital any, you know, anymore. Um, it, I think that there's just a lot of, a lot of fear. I've called patients on the phone and they've just told me that they don't want to come in for their appointments, even if they need lab work, they don't want to, they're just fully wanting to avoid the healthcare system. Um, the hospital is quiet because of that. So it's quiet for two reasons, right? That we're not doing as much surgery right now. So the, the surgery has been cut back, what, what might be called elective surgery, mm-hmm. um, but, but less urgent procedures, right, are not, are not being done. And so those beds are free, but, but it's also true that we're seeing less heart attacks, for mm-hmm. example. And the question is, where where are the where are the heart attacks? Yeah, and you know it's a little concerning. Are people having chest pain and just re- refusing to come into the emergency room because they don't want COVID? And this is, I do think we're going to see sort of a maybe a second wave of other il- other things that weren't taken care of um, during this time period because people were were scared to come in and get and get their usual care. Do you think people are literally having heart attacks and not going to the hospital? Well, we don't know. It, it, it's possible to have, you know, like smaller heart attacks and not go to the hospital. So it, it could be true that you have chest pain that's worsening, but you're not really doing anything about it. And if they came in now, we could easily do a stent, but they might wait till it gets really bad before coming in. Right. Or um, that's another theory that people just aren't exerting themselves as much. So they're yeah. not having heart attacks as much. <laughs> so if they're not going out and doing things like they're not, you know, yeah. yeah. So um but things like that, uh, the repercussions on the other illnesses that we normally see are are, are as of yet to be seen. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, San Francisco has now mandated face masks when people run essential errands like going to the grocery store or ride public transit. 
Uh, I was wondering what you think of that rule and if it's gone far enough. Some people don't like that it leaves out exercising, especially you see those sweaty joggers who are huffing and puffing <laughs> all over people in the park. Do, should they be wearing masks as well? As a as a scientist, I am less concerned about the exercisers mm -hmm. and the uh, people who are alone walking their dog. I will admit that when I am walking my dog alone, I do not wear a mask um, because there's no one around me within six feet. And I also make sure to get out of the way. Mm -hmm. um, I think if those runners are getting out of the way and staying six feet away, then there's honestly nothing to worry about. Um, very, very low risk that they're going to be, especially if they're healthy enough to run. Yeah. <laughs> That's mostly a joke. Uh, they could be asymptomatic, but um, but I I think that um, I I think that the face mask face masking in general is a really good idea mm -hmm. uh, because there is there does appear to be some asymptomatic transmission of this virus, right? So I think that's a really scary thing that you could be infected and you could transmit it, but it, masks are really effective for that. So if you are infected, um, from preventing you from transmitting to other people. And so I really like the idea of us all attempting to protect each other by wearing masks. Um, if you have a surgical mask, you should not an N95, but a regular um, surgical mask, then you should use that. If you don't have that, then cloth masks um, are, are fine. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been shown, you know, there are a lot of countries which uh, wearing a face mask in when these outbreaks happen is more common, for example, like in Hong Kong, um, because uh, the Asian countries that were affected more by the original SARS, um, and there there does seem to be an effect on on transmission of the virus. So I'm glad that we've we've mandated the the masking. Mm -hmm. How long would you think people will be required to wear masks? Will it be part of our new normal, like it is in some Asian countries? I honestly think it might become part of our new normal. Uh, I I can't imagine that we're going to be out of the woods for this for for many months, mm -hmm. and you know soon. Well, soon it's summer now, but soon it will be winter. And when respiratory viral season, our regular respiratory viral season picks back up, um, we're going to have an, even more of an impetus to want to keep the COVID transmission down because we're also going to see more hospitalizations from flu and other and other illnesses. Mm -hmm. So I think that in general, we're going to be wearing face coverings and masks for in public for a for a long time. Mm -hmm. I'm Heather Knight, and I'll be right back with Dr. Jessica Briggs. I'm Heather Knight, and I'm back with Jessica Briggs, an infectious disease fellow at UCSF. There's also a lot of talk right now about antibody testing, and um, how important do you think that will be in determining when and how to reopen society? Yeah, there's a lot of talk about antibody testing. Um, I'll, I'll address it in two ways. The, the, most the most important thing that antibody testing could, could tell us is uh, how, how, what proportion of the population has been infected, right? So Right now, we know because testing, we don't have a lot of tests. Um, we know that there is probably a large uh, percentage of people that has been infected that were never actually tested, right? And most scientists think that that's between like five to 10 times more cases than we know, right? But what antibody testing, serology can do is tell us that number truly, like what, what proportion of the population has already been infected. Um, and that is something that helps us know how transmissible the virus is and how close we are to developing herd immunity, mm -hmm. right? Um, and those are important things to know. The problem is that right now, most of our antibody tests are not that reliable. And so I would really caution people, there are a lot of new studies coming out that seem to imply that more people have been infected than we thought, like maybe 50 to 80 times more people than we thought. Wow. Which, 
Excuse me, I hope that's true, because if that's true, it means that a higher proportion have already been infected and developed immunity. And um, perhaps we can like perhaps the, the overall fatality rate is lower than than we thought. Right. The problem is, is that some of those numbers don't make a lot of sense. Um, and the antibody tests, first of all, haven't like they're not very specific yet. And so they have a lot. They could have a lot of false positives. Um, and secondly, those studies were conducted in what a convenient sampling framework, which means uh, people were sort of uh, advertised to. And so the people that come in might have been more likely to have been exposed because maybe they have a worry about someone they knew or they had symptoms or they traveled or something. Right. And so these the data that's just coming out of L.A. and Santa Clara, you know, I would take with a, a large grain of salt. And and I would say that we have a long way to go before really knowing what proportion of the population in California has already been exposed. And then I think the other thing that people are really interested in, right, is this um, uh, immunity passport. Mm -hmm. So if you have been infected and you test positive on an antibody response, then you're like, oh, I'm good to go. I can re-enter society. I don't have to wear a mask and I can be free again, right? Um, but the truth about that again, is that we don't fully understand the the immune response to this virus yet. And we don't know if having binding antibodies, the kind of antibodies that show up on this test, are the same as um, antibodies that protect you against illness. Um, and the assay that you use to determine that is called a neutralizing antibody test. It's a, quite, it's a bit different. And so there are a lot of basic science questions that are still to be answered mm -hmm. about immunity to this virus. And um, I think getting to the point where we feel confident in telling someone, hey, you're safe um, is 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 a long way, you know, a long way out for right now. Do you have any thoughts on whether it's likely that people who've had it are immune? If you had to bet, would you say they probably are? Or? So there's a, the only evidence we have for this is looking at what we call the endemic coronaviruses. So there are four endemic coronaviruses um, that cause basically 20 percent of the common colds. Mm -hmm. And um Unfortunately, it seems like immunity to the, the common coronaviruses uh, only lasts for about a year. Mm. So there is some immunity. They do generate immunity, but they don't generate very long lasting immunity. And do we know if that's going to be true for this virus? You know, all we can really do is make assumptions based on what we do know. So most scientists I know think that there is some protective immunity, but that it is not necessarily long lasting um, or what we call sterilizing so that you can never get it again. Mm -hmm. And again, another very important thing to find out um, is how long that immunity lasts. And on that topic, um, my lab is actually helping to run a study to look into that. Mm. So, you know, if if you have been diagnosed um, with COVID and you're interested in participating in a longitudinal study, looking at the antibody response to this virus, uh, where we take blood and saliva and track your antibodies over time, um, you can email us um, at liinc at ucsf.edu. Um, and we can see if you qualify to, to be enrolled in our study. Oh, that's very cool. I'll have to follow up with you on that to see the outcome. Yeah. Another question in the city, City Hall has gotten a, you know, a lot of pats on the back, rightfully so, for doing a good job overall in terms of COVID-19 response. But a big um, area of weakness seems to be the homeless population. The Tenderloin is still packed with tents and people are having a really hard time social distancing there. And of course, there was a huge outbreak at the MSC South shelter. Does this kind of teach us anything about homelessness in general and, you know, demonstrate that their health is so linked with ours and that we need to do a better job, you know, in general? Yes. 
every advocate I know really hopes that we can use this time uh, to get people permanently housed, mm-hmm. not just put in, because a lot of what's happening right now is people are being put into hotels when they test positive, um, basically to quarantine them for 14 days so they can recuperate and, and be safe, right? Mm-hmm. But I think if we really wanted to think about how to do this um, in a sustainable way, we would think about how, how to get people housed in a long-term fashion, um, because it's going to protect us in the future, right? And I think that that's what you're getting at is that we are all connected. Um, and this might be an opportunity to repurpose properties that are, can't be used right now, like hotels. And of course, you know, I, I'm not, I don't know how to deal with the economic side of this. You know, the city might have to buy properties off um, places that aren't going to make it through this, this pandemic. Um, but I do think we have an opportunity here to, to think seriously about how to improve this situation um, rather than just do uh, house people for 14 days and sort of um, paste over it for a limited period of time. Right. So everybody is wondering, when are we going to return to some semblance of normal? Some states are already loosening up and you see protests, you know, from people saying, let us go back to regular life. But um, California, Oregon and Washington are working together to take a more steady and um, slow uh, reentry. What do you think should happen? And what would you say to listeners they should expect over the next few weeks, months and up to a year? I think to anticipate things to move slowly and remember that you are doing this in solidarity with your fellow humans Mm -hmm. and it's going to be hard for all of us, but it's going to save lives and you'll never know how many lives you saved, but you will have saved a lot of lives. Um, So I'm very worried about places like Georgia that is real. They're reopening. They, I mean, they, there's a lot of reasons that they should not reopen the way that they're doing it. Um, They're not doing it staged and they are also reopening uh, before they really had a, a significant sustained decline in cases. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I anticipate that we're going to see a very bad second wave there. Uh, What what it comes down to is that a very small percentage of the population overall has already been exposed, right? So even if it's as high as two to 4%, like that study in Santa Clara says, that's an extremely low percent of us that have immunity. And herd immunity would require 70% at least. So um, basically all that is to say is that a large proportion of us is still going to be um, uh, susceptible to infection when we are let back out. Mm-hmm. So the question is, how how do we return to some semblance of normal? And I think it's going to have to be a very staged process. And I think some things are obvious, like no sporting events with thousands of people, no concerts, hundreds and thousands of people. Uh, I think some questions are a lot harder. Uh, what are we going to do about weddings is something that I think about a lot with my sister trying to get married Aww. in September. Um, but I but I worry. I, I'm not really sure we should have gatherings of more than 50 people, especially coming from other states where um, everyone's going to be at different peaks in their, in their transmission cycle. Um, there's questions about public transit. Should we operate that at 50 percent of normal? Um, I think we're going to continue to have telework for those that can for a long time. We might have shifted work and shifted schools uh, in terms of like some kids going on some weeks and some kids going on others to maintain distancing. I think people continue to use masks. And I think that there's a high chance that we will do this by trial and error at first. So we'll relax some things. We'll see what happens. And if cases start climbing exponentially again, we'll have to go back into shelter in place and then sort out how to relax it next time. Mm-hmm. And the problem, you know, there's just not a lot of data about this, about how to effectively do this. The only country that's really been successful f- full out is South Korea. And they have an enormous capacity to test. 
um, trace contacts and quarantine. And by doing that, they have been able really to to keep transmission, you know, keep the R less than one and enable the rest of the population to go out and live fairly normal lives. Hmm. So part of getting to that point for us is going to ramping up testing, ramping up contact tracing um, and getting our public health system as buffed up as it can possibly be is going to be a, a fundamental part of all the rest of us getting getting back to normal. Um, and then, you know, of course, in the end, we're going to need medicines and vaccines. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think things will go 100% fully back to normal until we have a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Although there is a chance that um, if we discover a medicine that um, has vaccine-like properties, so you can use it to prevent infection as well as treat it, mm-hmm. uh, that could be something as a really good tool in our arsenal. Well, it was really informative and fun to talk to you. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, no problem. Thank you to Dr. Jessica Briggs for joining me today, to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and to you for listening. Fifth Emission is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. If you like this podcast, please consider becoming a financial supporter of the largest newsroom in Northern California. You can sign up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.